Okay, I do want to remind you that all the scripture that we're using this morning is on the back of the bulletin, so you can follow uh, that, because I am not necessarily staying in one place this morning, but I do want to bring across to you the message that there is victory in Christ Jesus, and there's a reason for that. In 1 Corinthians, the passage that was read this morning, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, it says this, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And victory always assumes that some battle or conflict took place. That's why you would have a victory. Somebody won if you have a victory, right? And in this case, we know who it is. But I want to kind of lay out how that happened. Last week, in my message, we saw that Jesus overcame the test and temptation that was, de- that was actually designed by Satan to get him to take the easy road, to get him to exercise the power of God instead of laying aside his independent exercise of that power and trust the Father to be a frail human being. Also, Satan wanted him to disregard the will of God and then ultimately to bypass the difficult road of suffering and death and the cross. He he was trying to divert him from that. Now, some people regard the death of Christ as a tragedy. Or some even say it was an accident. They say it was just one of those things that should have never happened. It was entirely due to the, either the stupidity of the people or some wrong political movement, move. Others say that Jesus was taken completely by surprise and that he never expected it when he said it's finished on the cross. He really was saying it's all over. His life had ended in failure. And he could, they say, have persuaded the people to follow him and live a godly life, but they would not listen. And so, at 33 years old, he died, and it was all a tragedy. People say that. People are saying that today. Now, those who think like that are ignorant of the Scripture. It's like when Jesus says, Have you not read? Have you not looked in the Word of God and found these things out? So they're ignorant of the Scripture because not only was Christ's death planned in eternity, if you read the Word of God, Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, the Word of God tells us. So did the prophets foretell his death 700 years before he was even born. And even the Old Testament, all its pictures and types and shadows pointed to his death. As Jesus on many occasions talked about the cross and prepared his followers for what was going to happen. In fact, right there on your bulletin, the first passage, it says there in Matthew twenty twenty-eight, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. From that time... The second passage in Matthew 16, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and, on the, on ra- and raised up on the third day. Well, Jesus did not bow to the subtle and powerful temptation of the prince of darkness. Instead, Jesus dealt decisively with the devil by actually going to the cross and finishing the work that was planned for him in eternity past. On the cross, God was putting our sins upon Jesus Christ and dealing with them there. In fact, that's what Isaiah the prophet said in your bulletin, the third verse. It says this, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And then it says this, But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So Jesus was taking the sin of his people. Also, Jesus further took care of all the enemies that would be against his people by bearing their sin. If people are not rescued from these enemies, they will die in their sin and be separated from the mercy and the grace and the love of God forever. This morning, I really want to clear something up. A misconception, and it's this. That the Bible... The misconception is really this, that the Bible tells us what we have to do in order to please this God whom we offended. That actually is not correct. It's incorrect. What the Bible actually tells us and teaches us is what God has done in order to reconcile us to himself. That's why the gospel is a command to come. It's already done. It's come. Not only is God not unwilling to receive us, it is he who goes out of his way to seek us. It is the adversary that tries to make us believe that God is against us. It was God who sent Christ. It was God himself who took the initiative. In other words, Redemption and salvation are entirely of God. They have no human origins at all. It's been untouched by human beings. In fact, it was God who took the initiative of removing five enemies against sinners in order for them to be saved. It was Martin Luther, that great reformer, who brought to this, this to the attention of his readers and his hearers in the day that they were steeped in religious darkness, those dark ages. The reason why those ages were dark is because no one had the Scripture. They were getting the Bible. 
They weren't getting the truth, so they were in spiritual darkness. Luther said, there are five enemies that have to be dealt with before a person can be saved. Sin. The law. The wrath of God. Satan and death. Those are the five enemies. So scripture affirms that Jesus definitely dealt with these five enemies quite effectively on the cross of Calvary. No one but the perfect unblemished lamb lamb could have borne the punishment of our sin in his own body on the tree. No one could have done that. This also means something else. It means that we can do nothing to save ourselves. According to Scripture, we can't deliver ourselves from these enemies. In fact, against these enemies, we are helpless, and we are guilty, and we are condemned. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you this morning... And thank you for the great things you've done for us. Make it clear to us today where we stand before you. So, Lord, that we can know these enemies have been moved away so we can come and believe in you and live for you. And, Lord, know that someday we have eternal life because of what Christ has done on the cross. That we're a part of that great harvest of resurrection. I pray that we be assured of those things today. I pray, Lord, you would remove anything that would cause us to want to depend on ourselves, that somehow we think we can save ourselves. I pray, Lord, that we, today we would see ourselves helpless. But, Lord, we would see you as the victorious one, that in you we have victory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a story that was once told of a little boy who fell into a pit. Night with all its dangers of wild beasts drew near and he could not get out. He trembled with fear. A crowd of town folk gathered around. One person stood up and told him he was foolish to fall into a pit. Another said he was a naughty little boy playing near the hole and he should have known better. A third person told him to get out as he got in, but he could not. Another threw him a stick, and he held onto it, but it broke. Of all things, someone even lectured him that once he got out, he should never fall in it again. The night drew nearer, until at length a very strong, kind man went right down into the pit himself, picked the boy up, and lifted him out. See, we have not just fallen into a pit. We were born spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 in your bulletin says that you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And there's no better word than to describe us as dead. Men who have in their, in their fallen and depraved condition, they have no way to respond to God. 
They're helpless. Just as a person physically dead does not respond to physical stimuli, so a person spiritually dead is unable to respond to spiritual things. A corpse does not hear the conversation going on in the funeral parlor. He has no appetite for food or drink. He feels no pain. He is dead. Just so. The inner man that we were born with is unsaved, and the spiritual faculties of that inner man are not functioning. They cannot function because they're dead until God gives them life. That's what it means to be born again. See, the life must come from God. It doesn't come from us. Salvation must come from God to us. We cannot generate it on our own. So ultimately, dead means to be ignorant of God, to ignore him, to lay him aside as nothing. People who just don't know God. The Gospel of John, in verse number 17, in your bulletin, the next verse, it says this. This is eternal life. What's eternal life? That they may know you. Who's that? The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, God sent Jesus Christ so people can know him. So that means this. Not to know God is death. Life that is non-Christian is living death. People can be alive physically, but they're walking around dead spiritually, dead to God. They have no desire for him. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that our deadness is really expressed in two words, trespasses and sins. The repetition of those two words is for the purpose of being more emphatic about the condition of our deadness. We love our sin. We love to break the rules. Paul speaks of sin as the power that holds humanity under its sway and leads them to an eternal death. See, Spiritual death ultimately leads to an eternal death. So, you see, we who have come to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior can say with great joy and triumph and confidence that there is victory in Jesus. That resurrection means Jesus is the victor, He's the winner. Jesus has risen from the dead and has overcome and defeated all the enemies that stood against us, that sought to undo us, that kept us slaves of sin and death. Now, I want you to take notice this morning, I mentioned them, of the five enemies that needed to be vanquished before anyone could be saved. And this was part of the Lord coming into the world and so the first enemy is the enemy of sin. Now, how did the Lord defeat sin? Well, there's, a, there's some big theological words I want to throw out to you, trying to uh, unpack them a little bit, but it's this. How did he take care of sin? The theological word is substitution. Substitution. If you look in your bulletin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we're going to read that in a minute. 
Substitution means that one person is put in the place of another. The substitution, of course, must be sufficient and satisfactory. Look at the verse. It says, He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, see, we were born into this world as sinners. Our hearts are depraved. And so we grow up. When we grow up, we sin in word, we sin in thought, we sin in deed, we sin all the time. All right? And the sin, of course, is rebellion against God. It's doing what we want in disregard to what God says. So we don't really love the Lord with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength, which the Bible says that we should. See, God's given us the, the, the holy law, uh, the Ten Commandments, and what do we do with them? We break them. We're guilty of breaking them. See, we deserve, because of how the Word of God tells us when we sin, that there's a wage to be paid for sin. And of course, it says in the Word of God, the wages of sin is death. Sin was dealt with in a substitute. Jesus died in the place of sinners. And the result of that was that the sins of his people were covered. Another word that comes in here is the word atonement. Atonement has the idea of covering. Our sin had to be covered. In other words, covering leads or is really equal to being forgiven of your sin. When God covers your sin and he washes it away, when he looks at you, when you believe in Christ, he sees no sin anymore. What does he see? He sees Christ's righteousness. So see, it's Christ who has to be your substitute, who has to die in your place in order for your sins to be covered and washed away. See, the way God covers sin of one who comes to believe in him and follow him is by the blood, by his blood. And that's why all through the scriptures, it talks about that Christ when he died on the cross, he had to shed his blood on the cross. There's a very specific reason for that. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, it says this right there in the bulletin. It says, The blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, our faith communicates to our conscience that we are pardoned through the precious blood of Christ. We're pardoned through his precious blood. Another big theological word is the word expiation. Expiation is something with a view to me or, or to the believer. The expiation of my sin. In other words, my sin is removed from me. It exits from me. You can insert your name in there if you'd like. It exits from you if you believe in Christ. And my sins are now placed upon Jesus. That's expiation. So your sin exits from you. It's placed on Christ forever. He's dealt with it there. So my sin is removed from me. And the punishment is removed from me and given to Jesus. What Jesus offers to God, he does for us. He is our high priest. And that was never accomplished by any high priest. 
So that means when our sins cry out against us as believers, well, the blood of Christ speaks on our behalf. I claim the covering of Christ, right? When our conscience would ruthlessly condemn us, the blood of Christ cries for forgiveness. That Christ's atonement fully satisfies the demands of God's righteousness. So forgiveness and mercy are guaranteed to those who receive Christ in humble and repentant faith. So in death, in the death of Christ, sin is forgiven. See, that, that is a, a great thing. See, this is an enemy that had to be dealt with, our own sin. So now believers, the Bible says, are dead to sin. Those who believe in Christ are dead to sin. And being dead to sin does not mean that we are perfect. It does not mean that we are without sin or that we shall never sin. What it means is that we are no longer in the realm of sin because we have been moved, removed from the realm of sin into the realm of the kingdom of God. And wherein that realm of sin, sin dominated our lives, its power governed us and the various lusts and desires that we had in the flesh. But once we become believers, we're removed from that. And so, therefore, Jesus deals sufficiently by what word? That big word, substitution. He died in the place of sinners. That's a great thing. So that enemy's done with. The next enemy is the law. And how did the Lord deal with that? Another big word is, well, it's not really that big of a word, but it's the word perfection. Perfection. He had to perfectly obey God. See, the law, the whole point of the law is that God says to do something, we're to do it. But the problem is, is the law had to be given in order that they or we might see that they or we could not keep it. So the law of God, the Ten Commandments, was actually given to us to show us we cannot obey the law. We cannot keep it perfectly. The law, in other words, was never designed to save anyone. The law could not save us because we could not keep it, and God knew that. What did the law end up doing to us? It condemns us. It condemns us in our sin. In fact, look at your Romans passage of Scripture in the bulletin. It says this in Romans 8. This is an incredible passage of Scripture. It says in verse 1 of Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why is there no condemnation? Because Christ took the penalty of the law. But look at verse number two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, as it is, was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And notice what it says. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. In other words, that Jesus fulfills the law, that when we believe in him, the law is fulfilled in us because it's fulfilled in him. So see, he perfectly kept the law. He never disobeyed the Father. He was the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God who fulfills all the demands of the law, and when we believe in him, 
those laws and all the commandments are fulfilled in Christ, it makes us perfect before God. So we are made righteous before God. We are made perfect before God. But there's a third enemy that comes up, and that's the enemy of the wrath of God. And how does the Lord deal with this? How does he deal with, with the wrath of God? Another big word, and it's the word propitiation. Propitiation means that on the cross, Jesus bore our sin and he bore our guilt. See, we were guilty because we sinned. See, Jesus faced the wrath of God instead of us and fully paid our paid on our behalf the debt we owed because of breaking the law. Look at Again, in Hebrews 2.17, your bulletin, it says, Therefore, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make, here's the word, propitiation for what? For the sins of his people. See, at the cross of Calvary, Jesus made it possible for a holy and a just God to be propitious towards us. In other words, favorably inclined toward us. See, Christ had to remove that enemy. Favorably inclined to people who are guilty sinners. I'm guilty. See, Jesus satisfied God's holy justice, enabling him to save people who deserved only judgment. So propitiation is something done with a view to God. An offering is made to God for what? To satisfy the demands of God's law and his justice. When Christ gives himself as a propitiatory sacrifice, he satisfies what God requires because God requires the penalty of sin and the penalty of sin is death and that's why Jesus had to die he had to die so when we believe in Christ God could look at us favorably not as a judge to judge us and send us to hell but favorably as a God who says because of Jesus Christ you can enter into the kingdom of God you are set free from the demands and the condemnation of the law it was like what it says in Isaiah 53:11, it says, "As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities." This means that God's wrath and justice towards anyone who believes in Jesus Christ are satisfied, and all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, their high priest. Christ is more than just a high priest. He is, according to Scripture, the great high priest. And so what is great high priest does? Christ did not satisfy the demands of God for himself, but he satisfied the demands of God for my sin and for my guilt and for the sins and guilt of all those who will come and believe in Jesus Christ. It's like in Romans, it says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. 
course, that passage of Scripture I love in, in Romans, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse number 9, it says, much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So see, propitiation is where we are saved from God's wrath. See, God removes that. Christ removes that enemy. See, if we neglect the only great means of salvation to escape God's wrath, we will stand alone to face the justice of God. It will not be a matter then of how can we escape but the cold, firm reality is there is no escape without Christ. You cannot escape from God's wrath without Christ. A Christian can stand, though, who believes in Christ, and they can declare it, I'm saved from God's wrath. My whole position has changed. I was unsaved, now I'm saved. I was under condemnation. Now I'm no longer under condemnation, not because of anything I could have done, but because everything Christ had done. In other words, we are moved from one place to another, from the place of not being Christian to the place of becoming a real, persevering Christian right to the end of our life, right into the kingdom of God. So Jesus' death satisfied God's judgment on sin, removing God's anger towards sinners and now God is an appeasing God's wrath towards us. God's looking upon us favorably in Christ. Don't you want to be in that position? That's the position I want to be in, but I could have never known that unless I found it out from the Word of God. It's got to be God who tells us what He's done. So now I can believe in Him of what He's done, what He's accomplished already. There's nothing I could add to what He's done. Not one thing. I can add to what he's done. But there's a fourth enemy, and that's the enemy of Satan himself. How does the Lord deal with it? this enemy? Simple word, destruction. If you look in your bulletin, look at 1 John 3, 8. It says this, The one who practice, practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of of the devil. The only way to, d- to deal with an enemy like Satan is to destroy him. And so all through Scripture, we see that Satan, who is the ruler of the air, but see, for those who believe in him, he's no longer their ruler. That his works, he still works in the sons of disobedience, but for those who believe in him, he can no longer work in them anymore. He doesn't have them anymore. They're no longer in his kingdom anymore. See, Satan hides himself in order to blind people from what he's doing behind the scenes. But for the believer, we have the word of God. And what does the word of God do? It gives us available knowledge on how to expose what he's doing, his schemes and his lies, and expose them with the truth. That's what it does. The truth is like a, a, a spotlight. It's like a magnifying glass, and you can see what's happening. And you look at the world through those. Uh, you have a Christian worldview, and you look at the world, and you say there's a lot of wickedness and evil in this world. And this world is not heading to a good place. This world is heading to a bad place. 
We can even say, people who know nothing about God can ask, what's going on? What's going on with this world? This, is, this world's crazy. It's nuts. There's wars everywhere. There's hatred that is abounding everywhere. And who's behind it all? You know who's behind it all? Satan. Satan's behind it all. But you know what he could not do? He could not hold back the Lord's work to reconcile us to God and put us right with the Father. He could no longer do that. The casting out of Satan is associated, associated with drawing people from all tribes and nations to Christ. He is unable, in other words, to stop the gospel and the active missionary work of the church. See, the devil and his forces thought the cross was their moment of victory. But what actually happened was the Lord was the victor by rising from the grave. And Satan right now is under judgment, waiting for the final judgment until the day when he will be confined to the abyss and the lake of fire forever. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In other words, in the end of that chapter in Revelation 20, it says, And those who were not found in God's books are also going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And it's not going to be a party in hell. It's not going to be a place where people are having a good time. It's going to be a place of darkness and misery and being left to yourself. Would you like to be left to yourself? I surely wouldn't. Because you know what? When we're left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves. Satan is no longer a reigning foe because of Christ. There's a fifth enemy, and the last one, and that's the enemy of death. Look at Romans 1.4 in your bulletin. See, the reason why we celebrate today is because, and actually we celebrate every day because his resurrection proved he is what he said he was, that he is the Son of God. His reigning, his, his rising, excuse me, proved that God had accepted the sacrifice he offered. Look what it says in Romans 1.4. Who was declared, I love that, the Son of God, with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared. In other words, God said, Listen, I have accepted your sacrifice. You defeated Satan, death. You defeated all the enemies against anyone to be saved. And so therefore, you are the Savior. You are declared the winner. You are the victor. See, Christ died to save us, and now he lives to keep us. Brethren, there is no gospel without Jesus Christ. There is no salvation without Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness without Jesus Christ. There is no peace without Jesus Christ. There is no Christianity without his death, his shed blood, his atoning substitutionary sacrifice. From the beginning to the end, all 
of God's gracious purposes are carried out by Christ and in Christ and through Christ. It is Christ who is the head of the church, who is the Son of God, who is the Savior of the world. He is the one who rose from the grave. He is the one who sended it on high. He is the one who seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority and power on heaven, in heaven and earth. And he is the one who's coming back again. And it all says that in the Word of God. Don't ever believe the lie that there could be some salvation or redemption from sin that is possible apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And that's what people are believing today. Because they're saying this. They're saying, oh, salvation is like a big mountain. And there's a summit. And everybody's heading to the same place, the summit. But they have different ways to get there. So you can come through this religion, and you can come through that religion, and you can come on your, with your own philosophy, and you can come with all your stuff. No. No, according to Scripture, there is only one way. And that is through the one who defeated all the enemies against us, who's done it so anyone who comes in repentance and faith to Christ can be saved, can have a relationship with God, can have God look upon them with favor, can have their sins completely forgiven, can have all their guilt that has accumulated all their life and their conscience cleansed because of what he's done. And he's offered to us eternal life. So through substitution and through perfection and through propitiation and through destruction of the enemy and through resurrection, Jesus Christ has secured the salvation of those who believe in him. And that is true. You can never lose what God's given you once you receive it. Because you would have to undo all those enemies. And you can't do that. Neither can you save yourself on one side and on the other side you can't undo it. It's done. And see, that's what's so great about salvation. And that's why salvation is offered to us as a gift. And a gift is something that is received freely. No payment. Just receive it. And so, for sure, the invitation here is what Jesus did on the cross is applicable to any person who comes to him. And I pray this morning for you who possibly do not believe that you would come and believe in Christ, that Christ would become your advocate, that you would come to know Jesus Christ who receives sinners. And remember this, friends, Jesus is willing to take you just as you are with all your guilt and sin and wash you and make you whiter than snow and promise that because he rose from the grave, he is the first fruits of the great harvest of resurrection. You will rise also. Now, the thing about it that is, is that there will be a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto damnation. Because we're created in the image of God and we have an eternal soul, when resurrection comes, because of what Christ has done, either someone's going to be raised to eternal life to spend an eternity in hell where there is no death and no escape, or they're going to spend an eternity with Christ where there is joy and rejoicing, where there's no crying or weeping or anything that would cause pain or 
anguish in that place. And it's all through Christ. Can't bypass him. And if you have salvation, today is the day to rejoice. Today is the day to thank God for the great thing he has has done. And then that's why I want want you to read the last passage in your bulletin. The 1 Corinthians passage, it says this. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, you've been saved to serve God, serve him, and none of it is empty because of what Christ has done. Amen? I prayed this morning that uh, the enemies that's been standing between you and God have been dealt with and have been removed. Believers have the victory in Jesus Christ. Today, if you don't know him, is a day that you can come and believe in him as your Lord and Savior. Ask him to save you from your sin. Those who really call upon the Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead will be saved. It all starts the same way with everyone who comes to Christ. So I pray that you would come to know him. And if you know him, continue to live for him. As it, and as the Bible says, and as you live for him, be steadfast. Keep doing it. Be immovable. And always abound. Always, be, always growing in the work of the Lord and what he's going to do because someday the Lord's going to come. Someday he may take you before he comes, but if he comes, you're coming with him. Either way, you're going to meet him this way or come with him that way, all right? But you're going to be with him. That's the point. When, when I die in Christ, I'm going to be with the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the great truth found in the word of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have removed and vanquished all the things that could possibly have been against us and removed them. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use your word to convict both men, women, boys, and girls of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and of their need to come to Christ. And I pray, Lord, they would come and believe, and they'd follow you. And I just ask you, Lord, that you would today use this time to bring salvation to those who do not know and encouragement to those who do know that we may continue to give praise to your great name for the great things you have done and the resurrection that you offer us only in Christ. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.